Hello and welcome to another episode of the Live Immediately podcast with Mike Campbell. Thank you so much for listening. This is where I have conversations with people who are living life on their own terms. We dive into those big moments that have pushed them through the fears and self-limiting beliefs that hold so many of us back. Now, I want you to think about something. What do you think it takes to cycle from Alaska to Argentina with your partner and twin 10-year-old boys? Well, this is exactly what I chat about with Nancy Sathry Vogel, because she has done this. She cycled from Alaska to Argentina with her family. It kind of blows my mind. And what I learned is that to cycle from Alaska to Argentina, it actually takes 1,018 days, over 27,000 kilometers, which is over 17,000 miles. And you have to go through 15 countries. It takes pushing through snowstorms and waking up at 3 a.m. to ride through the desert before the sun becomes unbearable. But more importantly, Nancy also taught me that it takes the desire to want to do something different, the motivation to change, the willingness to fail, and the courage to live a life that you want to live. Nancy and I do chat about her family adventures and the countries that they visited and how she schooled her boys on the road. However, we also dive into the challenges of finding your passion, the difficulties in doing something that is different to how you were raised, and the craziness in not trying. Nancy has a beautiful outlook on life where she lives each day to the fullest while staying focused on the bigger picture. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nancy Sathry Vogel. Hi, Nancy. How are you? I am doing well. How are you today? I'm very well indeed. Very well indeed. And welcome to the podcast. And, and whereabouts in this beautiful world do I find you today? I am actually in the amazing town of Boise, Idaho in the U.S. Boise, Idaho. So is Idaho to the, oh, I'm testing my geography here, to the west of Colorado? Northwest, yes. Northwest, okay. Uh, Oregon and Washington are on the coast, and we're right next to Oregon and Washington. Got you. And then you've got Montana and Colorado? Right. Ah, jeez. Mm-hmm. Not bad, not bad. Um, <laughs> well, as I said, welcome to the podcast. And you and your family went on a truly fascinating adventure where you went for a little bike ride one day that turned into many days. Um, to start us off, could you please tell everyone where you cycled from and, and where you cycled to? Well, I think that's that's a, a bit more of an answer than what you're probably thinking. So basically, when uh, we have twin boys, and when the boys were eight, they had just finished grade two, and we took off at that point. Uh, we put them on a bicycle built for three with my husband, and I rode my old bike, and we spent their entire grade three year cycling around the U.S. and Mexico. Then we came back to Idaho, and the boys went to grade four. And then as soon as grade four was finished, we flew up to Alaska, uh, as far north as you can go, up to the shores of the Arctic Ocean. 
And then we spent the next three years riding south until we reached the very tip of South America in Ushuaia. Wow. So hold on. This is, you've, you've kind of thrown a couple of curveballs at me here. So it's, it's not just this one massive adventure that you've done. You seem to have scattered lots of big adventures on the, on the bike together. Well, yeah, there were basically two, and we are most known for the Alaska to Argentina trip. That's kind of what Family on Bikes is known for. Uh, but so much of the Alaska to Argentina trip actually stems back to that one year around the U.S. and Mexico. So that's why when I'm talking about this, so much of it will end up being about the that trip around the U.S. and Mexico. So I, I want to make sure that I, I do say that there were those two trips. There was the one-year trip while the kids were in grade three, and then there was the three-year trip when they were in grades five, six, and seven. And, and I guess, too, with that, that earlier trip, whether it was a maybe a, a, a test trip, if you'd like to call it, but starting even, even that, like going around the U.S. and Mexico for a year when your boys are eight years old. Mm -hmm. How did the thought process come about to even try to attempt something like this? <laughs> you know, and, and that, and that's kind of a funny, a, a whole funny scenario because way back uh, in 1990, my husband and I spent a year cycling around um, Pakistan, India, Nepal, and Bangladesh. And, then we had done a lot of bike touring, you know, just a summer trip or a three-week trip at Christmas or whatever. So the bikes have been a big part of our lives. And after we had kids, I think we both kind of had this dream or a vision or, a, you know, more of a pipe dream, I think, that we would head out with our kids on the bikes. But, of course, that's not what parents do. And so I think we both kind of realized that even though we fantasized about doing it, we knew that we never would because we are responsible parents and all of that. And, and that's just not something that parents do. And, um, and, but like, I guess on that point, like in a sense, you're talking about how parents need to potentially push down or push away or hide or forget about their dreams because parenthood kind of takes over those other responsibilities take over how did how did you deal with those emotions well so we had we had recently moved back to the US we were living overseas we my husband and I were both school teachers and we were living overseas uh, we had recently moved back to the U.S., and truthfully, my husband was not uh, happy at all with our situation here. His job, he had gotten this teaching job that he really didn't like. Um, it, was a, it was just a very, very, very difficult year for him in the schools. And, and he came home one day after a particularly hard day and he just said, Nancy, I, I don't want to do this. Um, let's quit our jobs and take off on the bikes. And I thought the man was crazy. Uh, I, I mean, that's not what parents do. And 
but he kept talking about it and every day it was like he'd come home and he'd say let's just do this let's just take off on the bikes and but again you know i had never heard of any parents doing this before this was not this was not in my wheelhouse this was not something that i had ever heard of anybody doing and he he kept talking and i kept saying you're crazy um and then one day we went over to visit my mom and he turned to my mom and he said nancy and i are considering uh taking next year off and riding our bikes around the nation and i was kind of taken back i was like wait a minute now who is this nancy is there another nancy in your life you know like this is this is not making sense here it does not compute uh, but that was the day that I realized that he was serious. Uh, he, I mean, if he told my mom that he wanted to do this, then he was really serious about doing it. And prior to that moment, I think this was just something I was thinking this was his midlife crisis. This was, you know, he was fantasizing about something. And But when he mentioned this to my mom, I realized he was serious. And so I started looking at it differently, knowing that he was serious about this. And I realized that it wasn't him that was crazy. It was me. Mm-hmm. I was the one who had fallen into this typical standard American rat race. I woke up early every morning. I dropped my kids off at daycare I raced over to school and I spent all day with other people's kids. I came home, I took the kids to soccer practice, I fixed a quick dinner, I threw a load of laundry in the dishwasher in the in the washing machine. I you know, I, I did all of this stuff that I was supposed to do because I was a mother and I didn't and I, and I did that because I was supposed to do it. I, I never questioned any of that. And I realized that my husband actually made a lot more sense than I did in that he was saying, wait a minute, we live once and our kids are never going to be this age again. And let's take advantage of this now while we have the opportunity. And so once I kind of shifted my thinking... I said, yeah, yeah, he's absolutely right. We should do this. And you spoke there about like shifting your thinking and and looking at the situation differently. Was there anything that you did in particular to be able to do that? Like, did you start thinking about the reasons why it could happen instead of the reasons why it couldn't happen? Or, Or how would you suggest someone can potentially shift the way that they're looking at something? I would say yes uh, to everything you've just said. I I don't know that there's I, – I think you have to start realizing that things are more possible than impossible and that maybe just somebody else hasn't done it doesn't mean that it can't be done. Now, the fact that other people haven't done it might mean – that it shouldn't be done, there might be a very valid reason why nobody else has done that thing. 
it may just be that nobody has thought about it. And so then, you know, you have to start looking at it. Okay, so it hasn't been done. Uh, why hasn't it been done? Is that it should it be done? Maybe should should we do it? Uh, can we do it? And and you, and you won't know until you do it. Another big breakthrough I had was I was laying in bed one night and I realized that while it was entirely possible that we might fail, it was entirely possible that we would buy this outrageously expensive bike and we would quit our jobs and we would do all of this stuff and it would fail spectacularly. Um, but if we didn't try it, then we would fail anyway. And I guess I kind of wrapped my head around the idea that I would rather fail trying to do it than to a hundred percent chance of failure because I didn't even try. Yeah, it's so true. Like it really is. You know, if you don't try something, then you're in the same position, you know, to, to change positions or to want to create change in your life, then, then certain things do need to change. But making that decision to go on this trip, you know, like the, an adventure like this doesn't, you know, the first step isn't when you hop on a bike. You know, there's, there's so many steps before that to actually enable a trip like this to take place. How did you push through those initial fears and to, to make this trip a reality? Um, that, that was hard. Uh, again, that first year we were fairly safe, I guess, um, you know, we hadn't rented out our home. We we had just kind of locked the door and left. And so if we needed to go back home, it wasn't a problem to go back home. Um, okay, so yeah, we bought this crazily expensive bicycle built for three. But, you know, money is is kind of the, the least of the, the big picture. So, okay, so if we lost the money for the bike that we could deal with, um, you know, we could always get other jobs. So it wasn't, when we took off that first time, it was fairly safe knowing that if, if this just didn't work out, it wasn't that big of a deal. We could just turn around and come back home. Uh, when we did the, the, the Alaska to Argentina trip, it was, it was very different for that trip our kids had decided that they wanted to break the world record. Um, so we had contacted Guinness world records and gotten the guidelines and had everything lined up. But that meant that we had to cycle every, every pedal stroke of the way we couldn't like take a bus through a hard section or whatever. We had to pedal it all. Um, and the most critical part right there was that the world record started up in Prudhoe Bay, Alaska. Our plan was to start in Fairbanks, 500 miles south. But then when the kids decided that they wanted to break this world record, we needed to go up to Prudhoe Bay, which again, 500 miles isn't that big of a deal. But that 500 miles is a big deal because that particular 500 miles is on probably the most remote road in North America. 
Uh, it is 500 miles of nothing. Most of it is dirt road. Um, and when I say 500 miles of nothing, I mean there's not a single grocery store. There was nothing. We had to, when we left Prudhoe Bay, we had to have enough food on our bikes for 500 miles. We had to have water filters so that we could get water out of streams. We had to be completely, completely uh, self-contained. And that that was tough. Um, that was a, a big challenge. That was very definitely a big challenge that required enormous amounts of planning. Um, and there was a huge risk in... In that part, that that 500 miles was was huge. And could you take your your dogs on that 500 miles? That I, <laughs> are they in the background there? Yeah, the dogs. They just ran in. My husband must have just gotten home. What kind um, of what kind of dogs do you have? My dogs right now. We have a, a golden retriever Dotson mix, and then we have another small one who is a Chihuahua. Uh, Chihuahua Schnauzer mix. Oh, beautiful! I I love, I love dogs too. Uh, sometimes more than humans, but anyway. So this five yeah. this five hundred miles, you, you you know, I I love. There's this show on uh, it's on Netflix, but I think it's on the Discovery Channel called Life Below Zero, and it's all about these people that live uh, in the Alaskan kind of wilderness. So I can kind of picture what this what this remote road would look like, but. When you're, you know, speaking about that 500 miles, or, or even just the the, the entire trip, um, and I'll just kind of, I'm just going to read out some stats here, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Alaska to Argentina, it was over 17,000 miles, which is over 27,000 kilometers. You had 1,018 days on the bike, and you went through 15 countries, which is just absolutely mind-blowing um, and then even more mind-blowing that you had that whole year adventure beforehand but when you were kind of traveling you know as I said on that top 500 miles or, or even throughout are you just camping in a in a tent on the side of the road or, or how does how does your your lodging what does your lodging look like yeah the logistics changed a lot depending on where we were um, it basically, yeah, throughout Alaska, Canada, um, the U.S., we did just camp on the side of the road. Uh, my husband is an absolute genius in finding camping spots. Um, so we would pull off the road and be completely hidden to, to the cars going by, and oh. we would just camp wherever. Um and then once we got down into like southern Mexico, it was just so hot. And staying in the tent at that point, it was just a sweat fest and none of us slept well. And so fortunately at that point, hotels were cheap enough that we then were able to start staying in cheap hotels. And throughout the entire tropics, basically we just went from one hotel to the next hotel and then starting again down in like southern Peru and Bolivia, we started camping again. Well, and you're talking there about completely different terrain and climate and all types of seasons that you would have been cycling through. What were some of the most challenging points through this adventure? Andy's. We did have to be prepared for everything. Um, 
we went through winter. We got stuck in Wyoming here in the U.S. with an early winter storm and had sub-zero, you know, temperatures that were just brutal. Is, is that your, your husband in the background there, is it? Yes, that's my husband. And all of a sudden, he's decided he wants to jump in on the interview. So <laughs> I hope you don't mind if he, he says something. I said sub-freezing or sub-zero, and he chimed in and said it was sub-freezing. So with Fahrenheit, those are different things, whereas with Celsius, they are one and the same. I got you. So um, anyway, in Wyoming, um, you know, ended up with just really, really, really bitter cold temperatures. So we had to figure out how to deal with the bitter cold. But then, of course, you get down to Central America where it was just outrageously hot and humid. And so in Central America, we were getting up at 3.30 in the morning so that we could be on the road at the first vestiges of light. Like as soon as we could see the the road, we would be out there cycling in order to take advantage of that relatively morning cool. Um the high Andes, again, we got back when we were going through southern Peru and Bolivia and the high Andes. It was the coldest winter on record. So you just kind of, you just adapt and you figure out how to deal with it and you you change your schedule and and you and you make it work. Before you left on, on either of these adventures, what what do you think was going to be the hardest thing to do? And was that different to the actual hardest thing? Boy, that's a tough question. Um, I think for me, and I don't know that this was true for my husband or kids, but I think for me, the physical challenge were... they. The physical challenges were not the hardest. Um, the mental aspect of it was harder. By that I mean dealing with the, the, the grind, and especially when you're going through a period where it's kind of an extended period where it's tough. And there were a few periods through the journey where it really got down to um, just simple, sheer mental determination that I'm going to make it through here. Uh, The physical part was tough, but it was more, how do you keep yourself focused mentally? And and were you you all encouraging each other and and helping each other through those moments or how did like how did this scene look absolutely and that's and that's where i i often say that the four of us were a team uh we weren't parents and children we were all equal members of a team and as equal members of a team you're trying to do something together and you know that you have to rely on your teammates 
and you know that you can't do it on your own. And the good news is that you rarely end up in a situation where all of the members of the team are down at the same time. Wow. And it, like, you know, you, you speak there about being all members of a team and your boys at the, at the time, and correct me if I'm wrong, what, they were probably around age 11 when you guys started they out? Were ten, they were 10 when we left Alaska. Yeah. yeah. So how... And when we were... How, how was the development with your boys at, you know, quite a young age of going through that mental toughness and even that physical toughness and decision-making, like how did you see them kind of grow over? Cause you had like three years on the road, like people at that age, like 10 to, to 13, like you change just when you're at home, like, but to be able to be cycling and going through all of these other challenges, how, how did you see them grow over that time? Um, and that that's a really hard question for me because they were just Davy and Daryl. And I don't have any basis for comparison of how they would have been had we not been on this journey. Just like any parent looks at their kids when they're 10, 11, 12, and they see them growing and changing, I saw my boys growing and changing as well, and, and I have no idea what they would have been like if we hadn't done the journey. So all I can say is that, you know, they were determined to reach Ushuaia. They never faltered in that. We left Alaska. Um, they knew that they were headed down to Ushuaia, and they never, as far as I know, they never second-guessed that or, or questioned whether they still wanted to do it. They just kept going, and yeah, they were changing and growing. Um, part of that change in growth was a direct result of our journey, and part was just because they were kids who were changing and growing. And were you cycling every day or most days? <laughs> no. Um, we took a lot of days off. Now, I will say that we cycled most days for about the first six months or so because we knew that we had to get down to Mexico by winter. We left Alaska in June um, so we left Alaska kind of as early as we could leave up there, and we had to get south by the time winter came. We actually crossed into Mexico on on January 13th. Um, and so that that part of the journey, we were cycling most days. We were, you know, we took days off. We figured out real early on that if we didn't take enough days off, then Mother Nature would make sure we took days off because we would get sick. <laughs> but uh, we we were we were moving very steadily during that time. And then the other time when we were again moving very steadily was once we got down to Argentina because at that point we knew that we needed to get down to Ushuaia in the fall before winter came because we didn't want to be riding through snow. 
So it was at the beginning and at the end, we were writing a lot. Uh, then the rest of it, once we were in the tropics, we took a lot of days off. Mm. And, and, you know, leading into, I guess, education with your boys, um, what did, what did bike school look like? Mm-hmm. What did bike school look like? Um, I should preface this by saying that both my, my husband and I were school teachers. Um, and one of the things that I had learned from my 20 years in the classroom, 21 years in the classroom, was that kids learn. They just learn. Like, that's what they do. Their brains are designed to make sense of the world around them. They just learn. And so I wasn't all that concerned about the education because I felt like just being out there in the world, doing what we were doing, the boys were learning so much. Now, they were both avid readers uh, and we did have, we ended up down in Columbia, we ended up buying Kindles for the boys and they could get as many books as they wanted to um, on their Kindles. Uh, Prior to that, we would buy books. We had a whole pannier that was dedicated just to books for the boys that we would go to a used bookstore and they would stock up on, you know, they'd get 30 books. Um, so they, and they just read, uh, I did do a little bit of work with them on just some different concepts that we saw, like when we were up in Alaska with the Arctic grasses, the grasses that are way up north in the Arctic tundra are these special grasses. Uh, and, and so we wrote an essay about that. So I kind of feel like if they can have a good solid grasp at how to write a basic five-paragraph essay and they know how to read then they're golden. And so they were both readers anyway, so I didn't have to worry about that one. And then I just, whenever I would find a good topic, whether that was in the Galapagos Islands and talking about adaptations and and evolution, or whether it was at Mayan ruins or it was up in the Arctic tundra or wherever, whenever I would find a good topic, I would... Uh, we would talk about it and have the kids write a a quick five-paragraph essay about it. Uh, We also carried math books. Both of my boys were and are very math-oriented. They love math, always have, and so we did carry math books, and the kids would pull out their math books either in the tent or in the hotel, and they would work through the math books. Well, seems like a pretty exciting classroom to be learning in, uh, peddling all of that way. And, you know, one thing I, I absolutely admire about you, Nancy, is that you and your family had the courage to do something different and to really, you know, follow your dreams and, and listen to your husband's crazy advice that was actually beautiful advice, but to, to you know, to actually make that that ginormous step to kind of step away from the norm which is often very hard to do to to follow your dream and to go on this family adventure how have you brought some of that 
that outlook back into your daily life? Um, I, I, I have continued with that attitude. We've been back now for seven years. Um, and I think what it comes down to is every morning I wake up and I say, what do I want to do with these next 24 hours? And if I ever wake up and say, I don't want to do this, then I will know that it's time to change. So I'm now, I didn't go back to teaching after we got back. I chose not to go back to teaching. I'm now working as a full-time artist. I'm a metalsmith. I make jewelry. And I absolutely love it. Um, I just, I love playing with my metal and creating these lovely things. And then I do shows and sell my jewelry. Um, and I, 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 and I just love what I'm doing and I'm feeling like I'm challenged and I'm driven. Um, I, I just, and I think that the whole thing and it, again, when we were, cycling uh, wake up in the morning and say is is this still what I want to do is is this goal of getting to Ushuaia is it still is it still my goal and that's not to say that there aren't some hard times in there and that's not to say that there aren't some experiences that I'd rather not do or uh, that weren't fun so it's not like the whole thing was fun but is it rewarding and is it worthwhile and is it still something that you want to pursue? And we all know that whenever we're pursuing anything, there's going to be aspects that we may not like so much. And, and that's all part of the, the bigger picture. So stay focused on the bigger picture. Is, is this what you want to do? Is this really where you want to go? And, if the answer is yes, then you plod through the parts that you don't like so well in order to reap the rewards of the, the bigger picture. What advice would you give to someone who is potentially struggling with finding what they want to pursue? Like, what is their passion? That is really hard. Uh, I remember my niece posting on Facebook years ago. She was like, 19 or 20 years old and and she posted and said I really want to pers pursue my passion and follow my dreams but I don't know what they are and <laughs> and it really hit me um you know I ultimately I think what it comes down to is what do you spend your time daydreaming about when you're just laying in bed and before you fall asleep, your mind is just wandering and going somewhere. What do you find yourself thinking about? You know, when you're when the TV's on and you've lost interest in the show and you're daydreaming, what are you daydreaming about? That is, I think, probably the best indicator of what you really would like to be doing. It's hard for people, I find. People that reach out to me, it, it, they struggle to articulate what, what their dreams are and, and, and where their values align. 
Well, I think it's I think it's a societal thing. I mean, just like how I was back when John first brought up the idea of taking the kids out on the bike. That's not what parents do. Parents wake up early, they drop their kids at daycare, they spend all day doing whatever it is that they're going to do for money, they pick up their kids, they take them to soccer practice, they cook dinner, they they throw laundry in the machine and they collapse into bed exhausted. And we do that because that's what society expects us to do. That's what we have been raised for. And, you know, our society has raised us in such a way as to say, this is what you should want. And so it's very difficult for us to say, this isn't what I want. I think by doing that, too often we feel like, and I don't think anybody else really sees it that way, but I think we do. Deep down inside of us, we see it as though we are kind of spitting in the face of our parents who raised us to want that typical life, our society who put so much energy into us so that we would want to, to to follow in that same path. And by saying, thank you very much for raising me that way. Thank you very much for putting all the energy and resources into all of, all of that education and, you know, the, 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 the whole support thing. But this isn't what I want. And it's very difficult for us to do that. So I think it's coming, it's overcoming that, that block where society tells us one thing and we want something else and being able to say, I appreciate what you've given me, but that's not what I want. That's not where I want to go. And you were saying too that like when you came back, you, you didn't go back to, to teaching and you've, you've fallen on this, this passion of, of creating your, your jewelry. Was it, was it challenging to adjust back into the American way of life when you first returned? Um, yes and no. In some ways, it was hard. We had been on the move for so long that my identity was a traveler. I, I identified so much of who I, who I was was a traveler. When I would talk with people, I would explain to them, you know, I mean, it's always, who are you? What do you do? And, and so much of that was, I was, I was a teacher and a traveler. And so then I came back and I didn't go back to teaching and I no longer was traveling. And truthfully, I was kind of done traveling. I, I had traveled for 30 years and, um, I, I was, I was tired of the travel, but I also, my boys were 13 and we believed that our boys at that point really needed to, we had given them the world, but we haven't given them a home and we needed to give them a home. We needed to settle down, uh, allow them to 
put down roots and be part of a greater community. Um, so we knew that we needed to be here for the boys. And so I think that helped because it was kind of like, it kind of forced us to, to be in mm. one place. Um, but over time I got to where, and it was, and it was little things. It was, it was having water whenever I wanted water. It was, uh, being able to turn a knob on a stove and have the stove magically get hot. It was having hot water in a shower. I mean, having a shower. <laughs> uh, you know, those little things, having a toilet. Mm. Those, those little things were, were huge. And, and, I focused on all of the benefits of, I guess, being stationary, being here. Our boys, like I've mentioned before, they were both very math, science kids, engineering type kids, and they got involved with a robotics team and started building robots. And that was just fabulous. I mean, we were watching our boys just dive headlong into this robot thing and of course I don't understand it at all but uh it was so amazing for them and it was just such a such a fabulous experience for the boys and so all of that worked together um mm -hmm. and it's just little by little and now I I I have no desire to travel now at all I I really don't but again I it's every day waking up and saying, what do I want to do today? What do I want to do with these next 24 hours? And if at any point being here in Boise, Idaho is no longer meeting my needs, then by all means, we'd head out. And, and what do you think the biggest lesson is that you learned about yourself from your 1,018 days on a bike? I think the biggest thing is that, that I can do anything I want to do. Um, if I can ride my bike from Alaska to Argentina, then I can do whatever. And again, like we talked earlier, the hardest part is trying to decide what do I want to dedicate myself to? Do I want to dedicate myself to perfecting my jewelry and making my jewelry, you know, where do I want to go with my jewelry? And is it really, do I really want to put that time and energy into doing that? Do I want to uh, do, I mean, whatever it is, trying to identify what it is that I want to put that time and energy into, knowing that there's going to be a learning curve, knowing that there's going to be frustration, knowing that whatever it is that I choose to do, um, is going to be difficult at times knowing that no big things are going to come overnight. Like if it's, if it's a big goal that I want to work toward, it's, it's going to take years to get there. Uh, and so trying to identify what it is that I really want to dedicate myself to, but I know that 
once I've dedicated myself to whatever that happens to be, uh, I can do it. Mm. I agree with that. I think that if you can cycle from Alaska to Argentina, you can absolutely do anything, um, which is which is beautiful. But Nancy, I have one final question for you today, and it is one that I ask all of my guests, and that's if you could please describe your perfect day. My perfect day right now at this particular point in my life, and I reserve the right to have that change tomorrow. Uh, My perfect day right now would be just to wake up when I want to and then just spend the day playing in my studio, making pretty stuff and have no pressures to get anything done Uh, You know, if I just play and I don't really make anything that is sellable, that's okay. Uh, Just be able to just play and experiment and try new techniques and push myself out of my my box that I, I of things that I already know how to do and try to expand my repertoire and and experiment and play. Experiment and play. What a beautiful way to spend a day. But Nancy, you know, thank you so much for your time here today. And and also congratulations on, as I said before, doing something so courageous and giving your boys such a beautiful, you know, three years, not just kind of seeing the world, but, you know, three years being with their mom and dad every single day, I think is absolutely priceless. But if people want to reach out to you or or learn a little bit more about your story or um, ask some questions, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, Our website is for for our biking stuff is familyonbikes.org. And uh, so there is a, a link in there that they can use to contact us if they need to ask questions or whatever. I also have links on there to... My books, I have five books. Uh, one of them is a, a travelogue about our Alaska to Argentina journey. Another one is about that one-year trip. And then there are some other books in there as well. And links to all of those are on familyonbikes.org. Um, if they want to see pictures of my jewelry, I do post some uh. pictures at uh, my jewelry website which is nancysathryvogel.com no spaces no dashes or anything just nancysathryvogel.com and uh yeah that's through either one of those websites they could contact me beautiful well i will definitely make sure that i link to both of those websites and also links to your books um but is there anything that i've forgotten about or anything that we 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 missed or anything that you'd like to add before we say goodbyes here I would just say that I think if somebody does want the travel lifestyle, it is easier to do than we are led to believe. And I know that our society makes it seem like living full time on the road is extremely hard to to do. And it's really not. Uh, It is it's much more doable than most people think 
Well said there, Nancy. Well said. But um, again, thank you so much for coming on, Nancy. And for everybody listening, thank you. And until next time, have fun and live immediately. That was another episode of the Live Immediately podcast with Mike Campbell. Thanks so much for listening. The original Live Immediately theme music is by the multi-talented Timothy McPhee. You can check out his music at firekites.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed the show, had some fun, and maybe even learned something, then make sure you subscribe via iTunes. And while you're there, why not leave a rating and a review? You know it's going to make my day. Thanks for stopping by and giving me some of your time today. I'll catch you on the next episode. And until then, have fun and live immediately.